Hello and welcome to the first episode of Simple Medicines podcast. My name is Kevin and the host of Simple Medicines is Hoji Alimi. To give you a quick background on who Hoji is, Hoji has founded and served as the CEO and chairman of several medical device and pharmaceutical companies over the last 25 years. He has taken two companies public on NASDAQ. He has more than 40 pants in the areas of anti-infectives and their use in wound care, ophthalmology, surgical care, and other medical applications. Hoji is currently the CEO and chairman of Collidian and his subsidiaries. He is also the head of product development at Spectrum Antimicrobials. Our goal with the podcast is to introduce you, the listener, to a variety of healthcare topics, which we hope will be beneficial whether you're a patient, a doctor, a scientist, or a business executive. On Simple Medicine, we want to discuss how medicine is researched, discovered, funded, and regulated in the global marketplace. To do this, we will be interviewing select CEOs and high-caliber healthcare professionals who've made significant contributions to the world of medicine. On this episode, Hoji will be explaining the steps needed to take a drug from a back-of-a-napkin idea to a multi-million dollar company. We hope you enjoy it. Please keep in mind the intent of this program is to discuss the latest medical innovations in patient care. None of the comments in our podcasts are intended to be medical advice or to replace your physician's advice. It's important to discuss any ideas, procedures, drugs, or therapies with your physician first. Thank you. My name is Hoji Alimi, and I'm going to be your host for this episode. And I plan to take you onto a journey into the universe of pharmaceutical and medical device industries during this program. We are going to together take an intimate look at how medicine is invented, discovered, developed, and even approved and priced. We are going to discuss that not all new drug discoveries and programs necessarily pivot on the same exact access when it comes to the level of risk and possibility for receiving a reimbursement code and market acceptance. Basically, the success of a drug doesn't solely depend on the merit of a science. Contrary to many beliefs out there, when a drug is invented and it even is proven to be cheaper, safer, more effective, that does not translate into being used on a patient or be available next to a patient bedside in a hospital. Some medications are accidentally discovered. Viagra is a very good example. During a clinical trial, the side effect of this drug was very obvious. Led to erection in males that lasted for a long period of time. That was an immediate market where the drug was repurposed and relaunched. Penicillin is another example of a drug that was accidentally discovered in early 1900s and led to saving millions of lives during World War II and thereafter. There are other drugs that once they're even designed and approved and launched, many decades later, some of their benefits are accidentally discovered and then they actually become a standard of care. For example, the benefit of aspirin, low-dose aspirin, for prevention of heart attack is now well understood. And even though the drug is generic, is commonly prescribed as part of a standard care for many patients. But many other drugs, or I would say the majority of drugs, are actually designed and tested 
from scratch on the back of a napkin to going through animal trials as required by FDA to make sure these drugs don't pose any safety issues in humans. And then they are allowed to go into human clinical trials where both, again, the safety as well as the efficacy of these drugs are documented and then submitted to the agency for final review and possible approval. And many of these drugs, even though they receive an initial approval to be commercialized, there will be post-market surveillance conducted by the company as well as the agency to make sure if there are any side effects or any toxicity that is observed, it will lead to what is known as black box warnings or different types of modifications to the actual label to make sure all safety and efficacy concerns are well communicated to physicians and to patients. But when a drug in its very infancy is being developed, is by usually a chemist, a scientist who's sitting there probably on the back of a napkin or a notepad is trying to draw and figure out what would be an ideal molecule that can possibly target a certain chemistry in the body in order to cure or treat the condition. At that point, you would believe that that scientist should be able to look at all chemistries that is actually available on this planet. So if you can imagine a funnel where its largest diameter is on the top and where we will feed any possible chemistry molecule element to provide a cure or treatment would be a candidate for consideration. However, the way the world of medicine works is that the development of a drug today nearly cost over $2 billion from taking a drug from a back of a napkin all the way through all the laboratory tests, animal studies as required by law, into human clinical trials, and finally getting it to the FDA for an approval. And again, that cost, the $2 billion, is an average. There are certain drugs that cost maybe a few million, and there are that may cost a lot higher, but on average, that's the cost. In order to attract that kind of a capital, investors often ask for exclusivity, meaning a period of exclusivity where if they are willing to put billions in the hands of a company or a scientist to actually develop a potential drug and they are willing to take that risk, then under the US patent law, then that company will preferably has somewhere around 20 to 22 years of exclusivity in the market. Why? Because if they spend $2 billion and they get the product approved and other companies who haven't taken that financial risk, they start manufacturing the same, get into the market, they're going to not only harm that company, but may even at times prevent them from commercializing. So going back to the diameter of that funnel, it drastically shrinks. And now scientists are looking for molecules and chemistries that not only are effective, that can do the job, that can provide a cure, but also they are not generally known to public. So in other words, if you get on the internet and you Google that chemistry or that molecule, it does not exist in the public domain. Nobody knows about that perfect molecule or that molecules benefit in the body's biological system. So this allows 
the company to file a patent, but also on the flip side, it shrinks the world of discovery for chemists that if truly they were going to provide a cure, an immediate cure to millions of patients or thousands of patients who are currently suffering, they can't really do that because now they got to go and look for that needle in the haystack. And if it doesn't exist, then they have to design a drug, a chemistry that is truly is novel and that is going to take a long time. So unfortunately, looking at the cost of capital to actually support the development of a new drug or sometimes even new medical device, it needs to equate the size of the market. So in other words, if there is only one patient in the world who suffers from an illness or a disease, unfortunately, most likely, no company is going to invest millions of dollars to treat that one single patient. However, as the size of the patients increase, so does the appetite by companies, institutions, investment banks to actually put the needed required capital to target the development of a cure or treatment for that disease. So for those who are not familiar with patents, you cannot patent what's already available in the nature. For example, if you come back and say, I'm going to file a patent on oxygen. Patent and patent world is very complex. So I'm trying to simplify here for purpose of this podcast. But you cannot generally patent something that everybody knows that it exists and what it does. Therefore, a lot of companies are looking for new chemistries or synthesizing their very own chemistries to get the job done. The challenge with medicine is that there are a lot of young entrepreneurs or even scientists around the world that is not just limited to United States, is that they are not really well experienced. And what happens is often professors, PhDs, scientists, they would like to immediately publish their findings. So somebody who has found a new cure or new chemistry finds out that his or her invention is an absolute cure to diabetes, which I actually have ran into that situation a couple of times in my career. But they have immediately gone to medical conferences, created posters, made publications, made announcements on the internet. And by placing that invention and that information in public domain, now they have become their own enemy, meaning because that information now resides in the public domain, can no longer be patentable even by the original inventor. So many of these inventions, unfortunately, rapidly meet their own tragic end as inventors don't understand patent strategies. The other issues is the high cost associated with developing a new drug and sometimes medical devices. And the reliance on this capital is another factor where many of these therapies sometimes don't make it to the market. There are two sources of, generally speaking, dollars that can flow into labs that are involved in innovation. One is government grants or different types of grants that they are called non-dilutive. They are providing grant money for purposes of supporting research where the grantor of that capital believes the result of that research is going to provide some benefit either to the community, to the government, or to the society. There are many different types of these organizations, both private 
as well as government-based and managed. These dollars, however, can also come from private sector, meaning either investors who have enough capital to take the risk to make their own investment, or there are other companies who are involved in making an investment into these opportunistic areas for invention of new drugs and devices. There are venture groups, family funds, the list goes on and on and on. This second type of investment actually comes with a stronger asks, meaning for the money and the dollar that they put in, often they will ask for certain return. Sometimes, which is very standard, they will ask for a percentage ownership in that invention or in the company that is inventing such a drug or a device. But as the urgency by the scientist or the company who's seeking the capital goes higher, the asks also get greater. It's very typical, for example, if you are a homeowner and you're trying to pay your mortgage, you fall behind on your mortgage, and the more desperate you become, the terms for getting additional money gets more and more expensive. So depending on different variables involved and how vulnerable financially that program is, other companies, just like banks who are taking advantage of people who are you know, not in certain situation to access capital easier, the more restrictive it becomes to access capital, the more expensive it gets. So the unfortunate part is that not only the world is getting more restrictive for scientists and for startups to come up with new innovations, but also there are more financial traps, regulatory traps that they have to be fully aware of in order to make sure they can successfully get their therapy by the patient's bedside. So most innovators and scientists are absolutely pushing to make sure their innovation gets to the market. But there are challenges ahead of all of us. For example, time is another one. So from the time that you come up with an idea and you file for a patent, the clock is ticking. So your 20 or 22 years of potential exclusivity under U.S. patent law will expire if you can produce results and get your drug development program or medical device designed from beginning to phase one or phase two, but you cannot gain additional capital to move it quickly into the next stage and the next stage, the clock will run out and other potential investors will no longer support or invest in that innovation, even if that innovation is absolutely safe and works and does a great job. I met with a company in California about a year and a half ago. A phenomenal company, phenomenal scientists. They actually designed a way to actually bring HIV under control with minimal side effect and a lot less expensive. However, again, they ran into the same issue where the patent life was ending and nobody else was willing to actually put more money, more capital into that company to help support it. For those who actually try to get into the U.S. market, which is the largest healthcare market, where more dollars are spent per capita in healthcare, and all healthcare and pharmaceutical companies would love to have a piece of this market, they have to go through an FDA review and approval process. But the chances of getting through all the appropriate funding, the designs, the animal studies, and everything else, and getting it 
to where you can actually file with FDA for them to look at your information and give you thumbs up or thumbs down. Of every 5,000 companies that they actually move into human studies, only five out of 5,000 statistically will make it. And out of that five, only one will get approved. So the chances of a drug going from invention all the way through approval is probably one of the 5,000, assuming that it has successfully gone through all the earlier stages of development, managed all the risk, and got it to the point actually to be in front of the FDA. We hope you enjoyed the first episode of Simple Medicines Podcast. For more information, please visit simplemedicines.com, where we are building a community of healthcare professionals and patients to continue our discussions about trends and problems that we are experiencing in the medical world today. Thank you.